And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It is, of course, Monday as we really kind of get into the, the, the month of June, right? This is the... Uh, End of the quarter, of course, uh, lots of stuff going on right now in terms of markets, economies, of you know, kind of really, and kind of everything really around the world right now. Everything really kind of focused on what's happening, really with inflation and the economy. I mean, this is this is the big thing, right? So Jamie Dimon out last week. I'm writing an article on this. You know, an economic hurricane is coming, and you know, it's interesting because we've talked about this before. You know, I grew up on the coast. And, uh, you know, so hurricanes are something, you know, you're very familiar with. And, and there's kind of a, an easy process about hurricanes that, you know, when you've been around them, you know, as long as I have, you know, there's just kind of a, you know, a sense of, of knowing how to prepare for one. Right. And, and once you've been through them, and again, I grew up like on the coast. So, you know, you know, through Alicia and Hugo and all those, you know, houses get flooded. It's terrible. But, you know, we would often get hurricane warnings coming in. We'd say, okay, there's a hurricane in the Gulf and it's expected to hit the Houston coastline and, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, everybody goes through the process. You know, you stock up on some water, you get some extra food, canned food. You know, you kind of go out and, and, you know, board up windows, do those type of activities. And then every now and then, hurricanes do these really strange things. They kind of hook north and, and go into Louisiana or go somewhere uh, somewhere else along the coastline and they don't hit their expected target now the reason i'm bringing this up is is because this is jamie diamond's point is that you know we've got all this inflation we have all this stuff going on and there's this economic hurricane coming we need to all prepare for it and he's right we do need to prepare for it but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have this economic hurricane but look there's certainly some things right now that are very concerning economically and, and there's no way to get around that you know we're talking about inflation inflation running at the at the highest level in 40 years now when you talk about that you know good story this weekend my oldest daughter was around the house all weekend and normally she's never there she's usually out driving around with her friends doing other stuff and I was like, you've been, you know, it was like she's watching movies with us this weekend, which love to have that. I mean, it's awesome to spend time with her. Great girl. But I'm, I asked her, I go, what are you doing here? And she goes, I can't afford the gas. Right. And then she was like, I got no money. And my bank account got like five bucks. She was so excited on Sunday. She's found five dollars in the back in her back pocket of a pair of jeans that were in the closet. So. You know, the, those little moments of glory, you know, made her day happy. She went and bought Chick-fil-A with it. So, you know, this is this is kind of the, the, the value of what's going on in the economy. I mean, people are very stressed about these very high levels of, of oil prices, gas prices, food prices. But some of this has been caused by supply chain disruptions, of course, as we shut down the economy a couple of years ago. The other part of it is due to these checks that we sent to households, that massive surge of liquidity. And then part of this is definitely due to what's going on between Ukraine and Russia. But here's the interesting point about this and the thing that you need to know. This time is not different. We have been through these periods before in history. And historically, when inflation is above 5%, you have an economic recession. 
And that's because of what happens is that high prices reduce demand, falling demand creates a recession, recessions cause further reductions in demand, which cause prices to come down. That's just the way it works. Here's a good example of, you know, prices, right? Baby formula has had extremely high prices because of the shutdown of Abbott on the baby food production. That plant coming back online now, that is going to have, you know, uh, supply back on the shelves here very shortly. And guess what? Prices will come down for baby formula. Now, that's a good thing, right? We need to have that out there. Mothers need these, you know, the one thing that babies have to have is baby formula. There is no substitute for baby formula. Got to have it. It's crucially important. But now we'll get supply back online and prices will come down. That's just the way it works. It's always about supply and demand. It was, it was interesting. I was uh, putting out some tweets this morning on our Twitter account and almost immediately get an email back, you know, get a tweet, tweet back. It's like, well, this time is different. No, this time is not different. High prices will cure high prices. Let me give you a good example about how, how high prices cure high prices. Let's take a look at a chart here of oil prices. Now, this is uh, this chart now, if you're driving in your car, don't try to look at your phone. <laughs> okay, I'm going to explain it very carefully. You'll understand. Um, but this is a chart of oil prices going back to 2004. Right. So this is a monthly chart of oil prices back to 2004. And what's important here is, is that currently, if we look at where oil prices are currently, we're currently trading about $119 a barrel this morning on oil prices on a monthly basis. Right. So this is a very sharp increase in oil prices since oil prices went negative in 2021. Right now, just remember, just a couple of years ago, oil prices are running below zero in the month of March and April um, because we had all kinds of problems with oil prices at the time. Now, that's all been reverted, and now we're back to running more than two standard deviations on a monthly basis above the long-term 50-month moving average, right? So very long-term moving average. Now, now, the important point about this is that when you take a look at oil prices where they are right now, they're extremely overbought, extremely extended from long-term means. And when you have this type of, of excess and when you have this type of extension in oil prices, there's an economic impact and you're feeling it at the pump right now, right? You go to, the, you go to the, the pump right now, national average this morning, I heard coming in up two cents yesterday, 489 a gallon on a national average. Now, if you live out in California, it's a lot higher than that. But national average, 49 for gas, that's where we're currently at. Now that is impacting consumption. As I said, my daughter this weekend can't afford gas and neither can a lot of other people. So they're starting to curtail that activity. You know, when you begin to curtail that activity, you reduce what? Curtailed activity is a reduction in demand. Supply is still being put out there. So eventually you get a reversal of supply demand imbalance and prices have to fall. Now, has this ever happened before in history? Yeah, back in 2008, we had exactly that same extension above the long-term moving average back at the peak of the market in 2008, oil prices went from basically where they were back then, which was about $130 a barrel um, for oil, all the way back down to roughly $20 a barrel in just about a year, about 12 months. Same type of very extended uh, um, technical indicators above long-term moving averages. Every one of those reversed just as you would expect it would as you had the financial crisis and recession. Last time we were even close to this was in 2014. Oil was again very extended to the upside, had a sell signal, of course, and then had that reversion in oil prices there. The point here is simply this, is this time is not different. Now, 
If you're investing in oil companies and oil stocks, that's great. Don't forget to take profits. <laughs> These things don't last. They're doing very well right now, and there's nothing wrong with being long oil and gas stocks, but don't forget that you need to take profits ultimately because these things will reverse. This time is not different. It's always a function of supply and demand. And the one thing that always reverts oil prices more than anything else, because commodities are very linked to the economic cycle, is a recession. So if an economic hurricane is coming, as per Jamie Dimon, then it may be some time to stock up on some water, you know, board up some windows just in case. And then if the, if the better of this comes, right, and the hurricane hooks north and goes into somewhere else or just dissipates out in the, over the middle of the Gulf, which has happened before, you know, you just go back to being normal, reinvest the, reinvest the allocation, put the equity money back to work, and you're all good. But again, a little bit of preparation is certainly better than not being prepared at all. Quick break, we'll come back, pick up. Is this market going to continue to rally? That's going to be the big question as we start getting into this week. Be right back on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. So futures pointing up this morning. Dow's up about 260 this morning as we kind of start kicking off the week. Now, this kind of follows what was happening um, Thursday and Friday last week. Markets kind of really struggled here. And of course, we were having that initial kind of rally. We've been talking about now for the last you know month or so uh, about the market being very oversold here, needing a reflexive rally. And so now we're kind of getting that rally into place. And had this nice rally, and we talked about in this weekend's newsletter, rallied right to that 38.2 retracement level from the March highs. So we in March, we'd come down from that peak uh, to the May lows, rallied back, and we got that first level kind of resistance, which was also happened to coincide with the lows that we put in very temporarily there in uh, late April which were also the lows of where Russia invaded Ukraine back in February. Now, I went through all this in this weekend's newsletter. So if you know, as we talk about this right now, um, when you get to work, get access to a computer, whatever, um, just download this weekend's newsletter. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. It's called The Technical Review of the Market. And we just kind of go through kind of the fundamental backdrop, fundamental technical backdrop of what's going on with the markets, uh, short-term and long-term, so bullish and bearish. The case for a short-term bullish rally still in place. And again, we're going to try to attempt again to test that 38.2% retracement level. We've got to get above that. We've got to get above those previous lows, which are now acting as resistance, 
uh, in order to get this rally to go a little bit further. And I think there's still potential we can do that. We're not overbought yet on um, some longer-term metrics. And the, you know, kind of our short-term buy signal is still in place here. And there's some things that are going on at this moment that is still supportive of a short-term rally. Now, again, I want to be really careful here that I'm not talking about a market, you know, hey, we're not about to go back to a bull market, not yet. There's too many things that are going on, but I think there's enough support here on a couple of different levels that you could have a bit stronger rally than a lot of people are expecting because there's so much bearish sentiment right now. Everybody's talking about this reflexive rally, sell the rally. Look, so are we. But when you have kind of your mainstream media talking about the same thing, normally markets do things that you don't expect. And, and there's a, you know, Bob Farrell, which is one of the great technicians, you know, kind of in, in Wall Street, of Wall Street fame, you know, had these kind of 10 basic rules. One of them was when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. And that's often pretty right. The herd's generally pretty wrong at important turning points. There's a tremendous amount of negative sentiment right now that is still kind of plaguing the markets. And you take a look at most of these indicators. These indicators suggest that we should be at a short-term bottom at least. Now, got to be careful with that. That doesn't necessarily mean, when you say a short-term bottom, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have this massive rally. It could just mean you just kind of flop around for a while and stop going down, which is for a lot of people is a victory in and of itself. Just stop going down <laughs> was what a lot of people wanted to hear for a while. And what's important about this is that there are some supportive ideas. Now, we've got some, some headwinds, right? We've got the Fed starting quantitative tightening this month. They're going to be tightening their balance sheet by $60 billion. That's twice the rate they were tightening their balance sheet back in 2018. That's going to expand to $90 billion by August. So that's definitely going to provide some headwind to equities as we extract that liquidity. But there's also liquidity coming into the markets as well. Uh, share buyback announcements, corporate share buybacks. We've talked about this before. Not a huge fan. Lots of reasons why share buybacks are not good for markets or investors. Great for insiders and executives. Not so much, not so good for everybody else, but great for insiders and executives. But the important thing is, is that share buybacks have accounted for about 40% of the rally in the S&P 500 since 2011. Corporate share buyback announcements already are running at a pace well above previous records because companies are needing to use cash that they have on their books to buy back shares in order to beat their earnings estimates for the rest of this year because they they know that revenue is going to be declining and that things are going to get weaker so they've got to do something to help lower that metric that they have to compare to which is the number of shares outstanding so buying back those shares helps elevate that eps so they can beat wall street estimates and that's what keeps the share price up keeps them well compensated in terms of executive compensation Again, no conspiracy theory here. 
But that is a support for equity prices, and that's something that we're likely going to see continue this year. And that could help put a, a at least a little bit of a floor underneath the markets, at least for a time being. Now, on the other side of this, we've also got to talk about markets themselves. Global equity funds, right? So global equity inflows continues at a unprecedented rate. So there's just all this capital out there. And it's got to go somewhere. And it's going into equities, it's going into bonds, it's going into everything. And that doesn't seem to be changing pace, at least in the short term. So there's some things, and 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 you know there's some things that are going on, that you know suggest that this market has a little bit more room to go to the upside here before, you know, you kind of get your next downturn. And, and look, you know, if we get into a recession later this year or early next year, which is highly probable, and I hate saying that that's highly probable because everybody's predicting a recession, and again, when everybody's expecting something, it tends to not happen, and everybody's expecting one right now. So, you know, I don't know what could change that dynamic, except maybe the Fed just completely reversing course in the short term, and I just don't see them doing that right now. But... Coming up at the end of the month is also the end of the quarter. As I was talking about, uh, you know, at the beginning of the show, is that this is the third, the you know, the third month of the quarter. So as of the end of this quarter, we've got a lot of mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds, etc., that all have to rebalance their books. And coming up on the third Friday of this month is options expiration, and that also is a potential lift for stocks at this point because so many people are off sides on their on their books. So options expiration, so on the third Friday of every month, we have the expiration of certain options, index, equity, futures, etc. And those have to be rolled over into the next contract month. So if I'm, you know, if I'm on Wall Street and I'm issuing options, I have to either buy or sell shares of the underlying contract of which I'm issuing out contracts on. So that's why these options expiration days are, are important for markets because that's where a lot of trading happens. And coming up on the third Friday of June, we've got a $3.2 trillion. Yeah, that's the T, $3.2 trillion options expiration on one day. Global equity mutual funds are logging about $21 billion a day in mutual fund inflows. That's the largest weekly inflow um, in the last 10 weeks, and that's helped lift stock prices last week. You know, if we continue to kind of see the flow of, of money at this point, you would expect to see higher asset prices over the course of the next week or so. 
But again, there's a lot of things weighing on this market. And, and the one thing kind of weighing on this market is investor sentiment, which again, as I said, is so bearish. Investors, both professional and retail, are so bearish right now that every rally is getting sold into. So that's that's limiting the potential here for an upside. And so what's got to happen is two things. One, this kind of buying, this kind of buying input that's coming in from different levels has to gain some traction here to a point that it begins to get people who are trying to sell the market or being short the market to reverse their positioning. And that tends to happen, and that's and that's what happens in a lot of times in these reflexive rallies, is they go to a point to where they start to elicit a, a change in that attitude, and all of a sudden, instead of people going, "Hey, I need to sell this rally," it's like, "Hey, I'm going to hang on a little bit longer because I think this market's going to run some more," and then they get more bullish, and then they start buying the rally, and that's where we'll start to see Jim Cramer talking about, "Ah, see the the bear market bottom is in." Got to be back along the markets. And that's when you really want to pay attention is when you start to get this sentiment shift in the mainstream media. Again, they're all too bearish right now. And that's why I think, and again, I think, and this is why we have to be careful. We're still selling this rally. Look, we're, we're just like everybody else. We're, we sold the rally some last week. We'll sell some more if it rallies some more this week. But, you know, I do think this rally has a limit to it. But at this point, if we can get above those April lows, we got a decent shot back towards the 50-day moving average. That's not a lot, by the way. But it's enough to clear off some positions and raise some additional cash just in case that economic hurricane that Jamie Dimon's talking about actually shows up. Be right back after the break. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So uh, a few months back, I wrote this article called ESG Investing, the Great Wall Street Money Heist. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I, I got, you know, some pushback on it because people talking about, no, 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 we, we, you know, we've got to invest in ESG. And it sounds great in theory, right? But, uh, you know, as we said before, you know, you buying shares from somebody else doesn't impact the planet at all. And companies don't care, 
you know, when you're trading stocks on the open market and buying an ETF has no impact on the company at all. They, they don't care. As long as their stock price is going up, that's all they care about. But one thing I noted then at that time, and as we discussed it, I said that, you know, as soon as ESG begins to underperform. Now, remember also, we went through the analysis and compared an ESG fund to the S&P 500 index, and the top 10 holdings are exactly the same, except for the shares of the issuer were also in the top 10 holdings, which helped boost their stock price and made their CEO wealthier. And their CEO, Larry Fink, uh, BlackRock, um, well, I'm not going to mention any names, um, you know, was getting a lot wealthier off this ESG thing. And plus, they charged you four times as much for exactly the same performance. The correlation between the BlackRock ESG fund and the S&P index, the correlation was 99%. I mean, it was identical. So why pay four times as much to get exactly the same thing with buying an index, Right. But, yeah, no, we got to do our virtue thing, right? It's all good. And, I, well, one thing I said at the time was is that as soon, we, we've seen this before. We did send stocks back in the 90s. And as soon as performance shifts, all this virtue signaling investing goes right out the window. And it was interesting because, you know, there's, you know, a change afoot, obviously, this year. Energy stock, the energy index, S&P energy index, is up 59% this year versus the S&P being down, you know, 12, 13, 14% for the year. Not surprisingly, ESG funds, which don't own oil and gas companies because they're evil, wicked companies, right? They're polluting the planet. We got to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, ESG funds suffered a huge outflow of capital this year as it flowed into, guess where? Energy stocks. And that certainly didn't take long. And, and you know, one of the, the, the byproducts of you know, this whole ESG idea is that it's actually fostering a transition into the very areas that they were trying to get money out of. The whole goal was to force these companies by extracting capital out of oil and gas companies was going to force them to go green, which, you know, these companies started to make that transition until, well, they don't need to anymore. And it's interesting, too, you know, overseas as well, uh, you know, there was this big push for, you know, alternative energy sources until the, they realized that uh, um, they don't have enough power. And now there's, you know, concerns over the fact that there's a demand now to start building new coal-powered coal plants in Europe because they need the energy, right? This whole green energy thing sounds great until you realize you don't have enough energy output to, to, to meet the demand of what people need. And then all of a sudden prices go through the roof. And when prices get high enough, see, it's all fine and dandy as long as there's no inflation, but as soon as inflation ramps up, then consumers go, hey, wait a minute. I need cheaper prices. And, and this is an important concept here because this is the whole issue that we have economically. And that goes back to the deficit and the debt. In order for economies to work, because we have so much debt and we're running such a big deficit, and not just debt at the, at the federal level, but also at the consumer level, 
is that it's all fine and dandy to have these ideas, these grandiose ideas of, hey, we're going to save the planet, we're going to do all this stuff, and we're going to switch to non-efficient forms of, of energy because, you know, it's, and I'm not saying that's not the right thing to do, it's just you can't do it all at once. You have to make a transition over a very long time frame and make sure that you have the infrastructure to provide the energy that you need to, to meet demand. We didn't do that. We just started going off the, the, the deep end and saying, okay, we got to get rid of all the oil companies and switch everything over to wind and solar, which are inefficient forms of production. <laughs> and then, of course, inflation hits because we also do some other stupid things like inject $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the economy and shut down the economy at the same time. And we now have inflation. And now that we have inflation, consumers are going can't afford it because I can't get enough debt to pay for that. And as interest rates go up, well, that causes the cost of living to go down. And so this puts consumers into a real bind. And that's what we're seeing right now is that if you take a look at what's going on with consumer debt, it's just spiking higher. Uh, because in order to make ends meet, in order to pay $5 a gallon for gasoline, it's got to go on the credit card because they simply don't have the wages to pay for it. And this is, this is, this is the issue. And not surprisingly, we're seeing money flows begin to transition back out. Look, and when it comes to investing, right, and this is what we said before is that, you know, having having virtue is great, right? You know, if you want to be ecologically sound, go plant some trees, right? Go do something. If you really want to invest in a company and say, I've invested to change the climate, right? Go find a startup private company. Go find somebody that's starting to do something that is going to change the environment as we know it and give them capital, Help them succeed. Now you're make, now you're investing to make a difference. You're taking a lot of risk. But now you're investing to make a change. Just buying and selling shares on the open market makes no impact to the economy. In fact, I would argue that buying and selling shares on the open exchange actually is a negative for the economy because you gotta, when you're transacting those electronic transactions, that requires electricity generated by coal. You're creating a carbon footprint. <laughs> but go plant trees. Go go invest in clean water. You know, go do those type of things, right? That's how you change the environment. Recycle at home, right? You can do those things. Those are opportunities that you have. But it's interesting because, you know, we we as soon as performance and, and see, before, you know, in, in 2020, 2021, when the ESG was the thing, performance was fine. Because we had all this speculative excess in the market, right? We had all this liquidity being dumped into the financial markets from the federal government and from the Fed. And so it looked like ESG was the thing until we get the other side of the coin. And see, this is always the case as investors. We've always got to remember there's two sides to every coin, Right? If you have an advance, you're going to have a decline. If you have one asset class that works really good for a year or two, guess what's going to work better the next year or two? The other side. 
Remember back in 2020, nobody wanted energy stocks. They were doing terrible. Now people can't get enough of them. What happens next? It's not going to stay that way. As I was talking about the opening of the show this morning, oil prices are more extended now than they were in 2008. There will be another side to this coin. And what causes it? Who knows? The Russia-Ukraine conflict will end. Supply will come back online. We could drill more here in, in the States, and we will. Drilling rig counts are going up. Drillers aren't stupid. They're going to take advantage of high prices. They're going to drill more, produce more oil, and they're going to take advantage of high prices. And they're going to get a glut of, of oil again. That's just the way it works, right? That's just the way that it works. We're now back to levels in oil prices that make sense to drill offshore again. Lots of untapped reserves offshore. So again, it may not happen this month, may not happen next month, may not happen this year. But at some point, supply comes back online, oil prices fall, they fall pretty rapidly. And as with all things, when one thing gets too extended on one side, it's going to get too extended on the other side. Just the way it works. Same thing with ESG investing. And again, you know, the, the important thing to remember is that there is no such thing as ESG. <laughs> there is no fundamental metric that anyone can point to and say, oh, that's ESG. You know, I can I can invest based on valuations, cash flows, income, you know, those type of things, because those are identifiable, quantifiable metrics that you can base an investment strategy on ESG. Not so much. Sounds great. Sounds great. But really hard to factor in. Apple. They're ESG friendly. They're in the ESG index, but, you know. They've got young kids producing iPhones in China for extremely low wages. How ESG is that, really? Electric car companies using cobalt manufactured by six-year-old girls in South Africa? Not so sure when you're strip mining the planet. That's all that ESG friendly. But, you know, these are the problems with ESG that we can't quantify. We can just impose our virtue on these things and hope that everybody else goes along with it. But the markets sort that out eventually, and they're sorting that out once again, as you'd expect. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. the show 
So, you know, talking about reversions to norms and those type of things and talking about inflation, of course, that's the big topic. <laughs> Everybody's talking about inflation, right? Can't go anywhere without somebody talking about gas prices, food prices, whatever it is. And as we've always talked about is, is that the cure for high prices is the cure for high prices. And it may not seem that way kind of in the heat of the moment where we are right now, but that is the way it always works out. And so there's a few ways to, to cure high prices. First of all, is that consumers stop consuming as much because they can't afford to, right? So now you have less demand. Supply continues to build. And then in order to get rid of supply, you've got to lower prices. That's just supply demand. It's just the way the imbalance works. And these are all about imbalances. Inflation is not some mythical beast that, you know, can't be beaten. It's just a, it's a imbalance of supply and demand. That's, that's all it is, right? Whether it's labor or food or gas, whatever it is, supply will always catch up to demand. Basic economics. And then supply will exceed demand, and at some point you get lower prices, and that's just the way it works. There's no stability to prices. It's always a tug-of-war between supply and demand. It's that ongoing, endless battle that exists. You know, one thing about high prices, though, and this is kind of the interesting thing, is that we had an employment report on Friday, um, employed 300,000-plus jobs. Everybody's very happy. And we're almost back. We've almost returned employment back to where we were in 2019. In other words, we've almost hired back everybody we fired in 2020. Now, that's saying a lot. Because we've increased the population since then. And we're just now getting back to where we've put all the people back to work that we laid off. We're not growing jobs. We're just putting people back to work in jobs now think about that it's an important concept but here's the other thing about it wages are going up skilled labor is a problem and there's one interesting thing about skilled labor skilled labor is incredibly important and there are some jobs in skilled labor that cannot be replaced. You know, you cannot replace a plumber, right? I've got an AC, one of my AC units crapped out over the weekend at my house. And so we've got an AC repair guy coming out today, right? You cannot replace that type of skilled labor. Electricians, plumbers, HVAC guys, those can, you know, there are just some jobs you can't replace. And those are jobs that we don't teach our kids to do anymore, right? Because we look down on those. We want our kids to be, you know, engineers or doctors or lawyers or whatever it is, right? And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but we're overlooking a job that will always be needed in the economy, and they pay very well. And you can make a very good living doing that type of work. But we look down on it because it's kind of blue-collar labor, right? We don't like that, unfortunately. We used to look up to those guys back in the 60s and 70s because they were the guys that built America, right? 
not so much anymore, right? We want our kids to all be in air-conditioned offices and, you know, doing that type of stuff. And kids want to do that too, right? You talk to, you know, kids are like, oh, yeah, I want to grow up and work in a big office. That's what they see on television, right? They, they watch shows on television and, you know, these people are working in big offices or wearing fancy clothes and are looking out over, you know, windows over cities. And they think that's the way life is supposed to be, right? And that's not the way it really works in a lot of cases. But, you know... That's, that's the issue. We don't teach those things anymore. But there's a lot of jobs out there that are important, but they're repetitive and they're mundane. Those jobs can be automated. And the one way to combat high labor cost is to automate a job. What are the highest, uh, what are the highest cost of labor, right? It's not just the salary or the wage. It's the benefits, it's the, you know, paid sick leave, it's the time off, it's the 401k matching, it's, it's all those other things. Employees want too much in a lot of cases. And we keep hearing these, you know, these rises by the youth and they want, you know, paid family leave, they want this leave, they want childcare, they want this thing, they want that thing, they want this other thing. They want everything but to work. Right? I want to work at home, so I don't really have to work as much. <laughs> a lot of those jobs are going to get replaced. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, orders for workplace robots have increased by 40% during the first quarter of 2022 versus the same period in 2021. This is according to the Association for Advancing Automation. This is Robotics Industries Trade Group. Explosive growth follows a 22% increase in year-over-year and 21 of growth in sales of robots before you could throw people at the problem instead of finding a more elegant solution. This is when wages were lower. Now, because of the increase in wages, you can't just throw bodies at a problem anymore. You've now got to find a more efficient solution to do it, and that's going to be automation. And, you know, there's this, this, you know, there's this old... You know, we used to talk about this a few years back on the radio show, and there was always somebody call them and say, yeah, but there's always going to need to be people to work on the robots. Not really, no. Uh, first of all, you don't need that many people to work on robots because once robots are working, other than occasional maintenance, they tend to do everything themselves. Another thing is you can build robots to maintenance robots. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, I was uh, talking to my son the other day. He's, about to, he's going to A&M and engineering. And he's like, I already know what I want to do. And I'm like, okay, what's that? He says, I'm going to build, he says, he's going to uh, be a computer engineer. And he's like, I already know what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to build artificial intelligence to do all the other engineering jobs. And I'm like, that's brilliant. So, you know, this is, you know, you say, hey, I want to build a building and the artificial intelligence does all the electrical work for it, whatever. Right. So how many engineers did you just displace? And of course, engineers right now are going, hey, it can't be done. We've seen stranger things happen. But the point is, is that we're advancing at a rate in terms of artificial intelligence, robotics, etc., that we can start replacing jobs that we never thought we could replace before. We didn't think that we could replace a guy flipping hamburgers. And we now have a robot that flips hamburgers. Right. We didn't think we could replace a bartender, right? We have robotic bartenders now. 
you know, but the point is, is there's a lot of jobs that we think we can't replace. We think we're, you know, as individuals, we believe we're irreplaceable. You can't replace me at my job. Yes, you can. Yeah. My job, in, my job in particular, right? Managing money. There's already all kinds of automated programs to manage portfolios, buy, sells, analysis, the whole nine yards. Robots that write articles, replacing journalists. How, you know, that was, you know, can't replace a journalist, right? They've got to go do the research. They've got to have that creativity. Nope. You just get an artificial intelligence to read enough articles and there's there's a there's a process to articles artificial intelligence learns to write the article give it a topic it goes does the research pulls out the quotes from people puts it all together produces an article it's not great yet but it's getting there kind of like movies you know there's a sequence to movies this is why you know there's pretty much when you watch a liam neeson movie (laughs) It's always the same. It's just a different city and a different character. Guy loses somebody, got to go kill a bunch of people to get them back. End of story. That's that's a Liam Neeson movie, right? But every movie's the same. And it's that formula, and that formula works for him, and, and right, and people watch his movies. After Bruce Willis made Die Hard, Bruce Willis made about a bajillion movies coming out that all followed a similar formula, right? Father, husband, whatever, son gets in trouble, has to go kill a bunch of people to get the kid back, right? It's just, you know, movie after movie, some sort. And deal with your ex. And deal with your ex. Yes, always have to deal with the ex. But that's, but that's just these formulas, right? And when you have these formulas in place, it's easy to start generating artificial intelligence or robotics to replace it. So if there's a repet- highly repetitive process, it can be replaced. And that's the movement that we're going to have. And this is going to cause suppression of wages over time. Because, again, if I've got to hire people and I've got to pay them, you know, to come do the job, they want time off, they want sick leave, they want this, they want vacation, they want whatever. And a robot shows up every single day, works 24 hours a day, never complains. Doesn't even ask for a coffee break. And that's just ridiculous. Speaking of coffee, 7 a.m. As we get ready to roll up the show. Be back tomorrow, of course. We'll see what happens in the market. The future still pointing higher. NASDAQ's up about 185. Bitcoin up about 5% this morning, finally getting back above 30,000. Woo! That was close. Uh, gold up a smidge this morning. S&P futures and Dow up as well. We'll see how today plays out. Got to get back above those April lows. Well, that'll be the big test today. Can we do it or not? Talk about that tomorrow. Be sure to get by the website. Our latest newsletter is out right now, talking to the technical review of the markets on the website now. And if you're not subscribed, to be sure and subscribe to the newsletter right there on our website. Just click the banner to subscribe. And, of course, you'll get it right in your email box every weekend, along with our daily commentary. That'll be out at 730 this morning. Stick around. Three minutes on Markets Money will be up shortly. All at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. It's 
to his last word.